guest in there. I'm a, like a full-time guest. <laughs> Permanent guest. Albeit extremely popular. A guest who wouldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we are ready to go. Uh, what are we calling this one, Connor? Rituals and officials, I believe. I used to name them, and now you are uh, seem to be the person who's taken over the name. But no, I've gone back through. It's, it's actually been a, a pretty equal back and forth. But yeah, today I was thinking game day rituals and officials. And for the first time ever, I think yours is better than what I came up with, so Connor, so let's roll with it. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor O'Malley, and my delightful yet discerning co-host, Bill Buckingham. In this episode, Bill and I break down game day, and we bridge the gap from the fan experience and our favorite moments to the roles that officials play when it's game time. We are joined by Rich Wade, who for several years spearheaded pushing squash officiating forward at the local, national, and global stage. He was there when the now leading organization of the WSO, or World Squash Officiating Program, was formed. Rich sums up the challenge all officials face when he shared, bad officiating is highlighted and exaggerated. Good officiating is ignored. After the interview, stay tuned or just skip ahead to the fan follow-up and see if your name is mentioned. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. And one of those big no-nos is we do sometimes wear them outside the house just because we like them so much. So go to bayasports.us and check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome back to The Breakdown. This is episode number what, Bill? We have reached episode number nine, Connor. Uh, the fans thought we wouldn't get past five. We're at nine. Yeah, doubling down expectations. And speaking of expectations, we're going to talk about a big thing called game day, which we all get excited about. We're going to do game day in two sections, rituals and officials. And we have a special guest today joining us, Bill. You want to introduce him? Uh, special guest indeed. Um, we This is our, our third guest on TBD. Uh, our favorite, I would say, of the three thus far, um, live from Philadelphia, the head squash professional at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Rich Wade. Bill, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Looking forward to this one, Richie. Feels like we're getting the band back together. <laughs> I know for context is actually we all overlapped at US Squash. That was kind of like the dream team era, I feel like. <laughs> Until we were traded off, traded off for players to be named later. <laughs> uh, well, so on game day, there's lots of rituals. And what we're going to span here is not only different sports, but how we do it in different countries. Looking forward to it, Connor. You want to talking about pregame rituals, rituals for fans, rituals for home. There's so many different ways we can tackle this. I think we let's break it down in two different ways. Your at home ritual, and then when you go into the stadium, what's your live ritual? So we're going to turn this over to Mr. Wade. Oh. First of all, what are the sports that you like to follow? Uh, first passion would definitely be football. Uh, since I'm on your podcast, I'll call it soccer for the sake of uh, of the breakdown. So definitely, first passion in terms of a spectator has to be soccer. For those of you out there that know me, mad Leeds United fan. We've suffered many years 
in the lower leagues of the uh, the English leagues. And and we're now back, as they say, 16 years on. I spent three years as a season ticket holder through my university days. And they were the years when we were at the lowest of the low. So I feel justified to be enjoying uh, what we call the glory days again. Are we going to have uh, a closed captioning for this podcast, Connor? Because this is our first international guest. And I, I got to say, I've known Rich for years and I understood like half of what he just said. I felt like I was watching the Dairy Girls. You know, I I, I think some of the, the elephant in the room we, we might want to call out. And um, Rich, you've been such a supporter of the breakdown. So thank you. Your encouragement has kept us going. But there's a lot of UK, US like sort of tension here. Do, do we need to break the burst the bubble here? No, you know, I, honestly, the fact that I'm not called Dave made me surprised that I'm on here in the first place. So appreciative <laughs> of that. Um, my wife would be the first to admit, based on what's on our television most of the time, I'm a sports fanatic and have 100% bought into all of your sports, whether that's, uh, you know, NFL, baseball, basketball. Basically, if there's a sport going and it's on ESPN, like I'll be watching Cornhole. So you're on the other side of the pond, as they say, and your team is uh, obviously playing over in the uh, Premier League. So you cannot go to the games at this point for, for various right. reasons. Talk about is Leeds playing today? They play on Monday. So that means that it's a good day. Leeds cannot lose. In fact, it won't ruin my weekend. We won't lose on a weekend, but it might ruin my first day back in the office on Monday. <laughs> so we won't talk about it. So we'll talk about this like you're not at work or you're not going to work. Talk about if Leeds was playing either today or tomorrow. Talk about your day in the in Philadelphia leading up to the Leeds game that you're going to watch on TV. Yeah, this is going to sound pretty sad, but it's quite lonely. I'm not a person that likes to watch games with other people, especially when it's my team that's playing. Uh, family excluded, obviously, always enjoy that. But I do not want to be surrounded by friends that are supporters of the other team. Uh, I want to be solo, on the sofa, shouting at the TV screen, sort of thinking that I'm the manager on the sidelines and know way more than what a genius manager does. But yeah, uh, the lockdown has been different. Um, I feel like the, the build-up happens far later than it would traditionally. It's more like, oh, wow, 10 minutes to kick off, let's, uh, let's get in position. Whereas, you know, the build-up in, in more normal times is, is drawn out. But to be honest, the last 16 years has been, can I find a terrible feed? Is someone showing it on Facebook Live? Is there an illegal feed somewhere that I can watch the lower leagues of English football? Whereas now we're back in the premiership, it's uh, a little more accessible. Any superstitions to watching it at home? Anything that you not, do rit ritualistically? Not really, no. And and I actually take that into most walks of life. I'm just not a superstitious person. Maybe that's why uh, I've not made it very far. But uh, <laughs> no, just not very superstitious. If I feel like if I start buying into that, then that will be the beginning of the end and my spiral will uh, rapidly go down. Is there anything that you do, like certain kinds of foods that you like in that day? Or do you wear the jersey? I'm not in the jersey now, just uh, maybe that's a superstition. But no, honestly, uh, the in-home experience is so different to at the game. I, and, and that's sort of as simple as I can put it. I, leave me alone. I don't want the jibing. I don't want the bantering back and forth. I want to watch the game and I'm going to absorb it to its maximum degree. All right. So compare that to being at the game. You're over in in England and you have tickets to the game and the game start, I, I you know, because we watch them here in the morning. So we, I guess we don't appreciate that the games start like they do in the NFL here. They start at like one o'clock and four o'clock, I'm assuming. Don't know that. And tell me what like your day is like if you're going to a Leeds game live in person. 
Yeah, so somewhat different. There tends to be um, like a midday lunchtime game, but the traditional time would be Saturday at three. So let's go through that and I'll break it into two different areas. As a child going to the game, like the whole day was built around, we've got to be there 90 minutes before kickoff. I love watching the players warm up. Um, Mum and dad would always buy me a program, which is sort of a little booklet that gives you, you know, probably long before the internet was so accessible and you basically go to the game knowing all of that information. Now, that was your one resource. And I used to collect all of the programs from all the games that we went to. And my mom probably has them hiding in a loft somewhere. Who knows? Um, and, um, and you know, that buildup was very ritualistic. You go past the burger van with the fried onions and that terrible cigarette smell on underneath the tunnel heading into the stadium. Those just smells and sounds and sort of timings that really make you realize, oh, wow, we're Leeds play at Allen Road. We're back at Allen Road, the fortress. And, and that was sort of how, how it went as a child, um, a much more elongated process. As I get older, and sort of realize how the other side of it is from an adult standpoint. It's you get to the Peacock, which is the pub right across the street from the game. Uh, and you're there for a couple of hours and you're best sneaking in as the music comes on for the players coming out onto the pitch. So you can sing your anthem and uh, sit or stand in your seat. So, uh, yeah, two, two very different vibes. Um, appreciative of both. Remember the younger days very well, but and I guess excited to take my kids to, to those games and experience it as I did 20 years ago. Now, when, when you're at the game live, given that when you're at home, you don't want to talk to anyone. So what, how, how is Rich Wade at stadium experience? Are you, will you even talk to me if I'm there? <laughs> so it's different because when you're at a game, you're sort of all, you're on the same page. You're all there for the same reason. Leeds fans are, are kind of crazy. Um, you know, renowned for being fairly aggressive, though I try not to be. Um, vociferous, creative in the chance that they make. You don't want to be an opposing player coming to Allen Road. They're going to just, you know, they're going to tear you a new one, basically. If you have bleach blonde hair, they're going to go after you. Whether you're short and fat, they're going to go after you. So there was just like a, a common denominator that you were all there both to enjoy the game but it was this boisterous, vociferous, get into them type mentality that uh, as 40,000 fans all together and unified is um, is unique and, and sort of a uh, goosebumps type moment. You know, very different to US sports where we're constantly chanting throughout the game. You go home, you've lost your voice. Whereas here, I, I find that it's just heckling more than anything else uh, versus creating a true atmosphere. Now, that's not true in every case but for the most part you know imagine you're in an nfl stadium trying to put someone off for a fourth and goal that type of energy for 90 minutes which which is very cool right and, and the difference i think between soccer and uh, sports in the u.s is there's not a lot of lull in play in soccer and that's a big difference going to sports in the, in the u.s i mean it's all stoppages you're basically there and you maybe get 15 20 minutes of actual play where the ball's in play and you could actually watch but for the most part, it's time to banter among the fans and talk to each other because there's so little going on in the field, uh, which, you know, I, I've never been a big soccer fan, but that is the one part of soccer that I could appreciate. 
here going to a live sporting event is a whole different animal. I mean, football, especially college football is a big deal in the United States. It's the one thing that fandom wise kind of reminds me of the Premier League, where maybe not so much in the Northeast, but certainly in the South and in the Midwest, the Big Ten area, SEC area down South, where the fans, I mean, everyone wears the jersey to the game. The game is the thing, and these people live and die by it. They show up three days before tailgating and and whatnot. But unlike what it sounds like, so I've been to games in the SEC and down in the ACC, and there's tailgating goes on. And regardless of how you know hot these fans are for these games, I, I you know I sit in the parking lot until the first quarter's over before we actually go into the game. It's it's such an odd thing because I've come there for the big game, and these folks are tailgating and they're uh, watching the bands and they're, all the rituals that go on for college football. And I'm like, okay, let's go in for kickoff. And they're like, nah, we wait to the end of the first quarter. I'm like, hmm, that does, doesn't jibe with the fan experience and the fandom that, uh, that that I'm reading about and hearing about everywhere. It's it's yeah. crazy. And do you get that at the uh, Premier League level or game starts, you know, people empty out of the pub and get there for kickoff? I think in my 30 odd years, I've missed one kickoff because we got stuck in the Peacock having a beer. Um, I liken that to what is my adopted team in America. My wife's family have been Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holders for over 50 years, sort of run through the family. Um, you know, I've been to many games with them. I have never once seen kickoff. And I find it fascinating. Like the butterflies start going. I hear the fireworks going up. I know that the players are coming out. And yet we're in the car park, um, you know, unaware of what's taking place and there is genuinely times i probably shouldn't say this they'll hate me for it that they've just never made it into the game it will get to if it's half time they're just they're staying they stick it on the radio and does it matter if they're winning or losing truly not and and sometimes they're, they're unawares of that and for them maybe because it's been over 50 years the ritual for them is just heading down to the game, being with their friends. There's four tickets, but sometimes like wives or husbands will come down and it's about the tailgate at that moment in time. Whereas for me, I'm like looking at my watch. Hey guys, it's time to go in. Like the buzz that I get is game day and the actual game. I think one of the differences that with soccer, it's 90 minutes on the clock and you know that that's it. Versus I think with football, it's you don't really know how long the game is going to last sometimes. NFL football, honestly, from a fan experience going to the game is probably one of the worst, worst things to ever attend. It just, there's so much stoppage in play, the TV timeouts. So much. It, you, and as a fan, you really have no idea, at least when you're watching at home, you could go to the bathroom, you could take breaks, you know what's going to go on and you actually use that time. And the fan experience watching an NFL football game at home far exceeds the experience of watching it live. And I think that's unique to pretty much any sport in the U.S. because I'd much rather go to a baseball game in person, a basketball game in person, and certainly a hockey game in person than watch any of those at home. But for pro football, I get offered giant tickets all the time, like saying, hey, you want giant tickets for this weekend? You want to go to the giant game with me this weekend? I, I've been once in the last 15 years. Wow. I just just can't do it. it. just It's just you go there and it's just such a long day in the game. Speaking of that, let's go to... What is your best live sporting event moment in our history? Yeah, personally, Richie, you want to jump in first since you're uh, since you're, you are our guest. All right, let me think about this. You can cut this bit out. I got to get this right. Take your time, <laughs> Bill. I know you got a tattoo for yours, so uh... <laughs> all right, got it. All right, let's hear it. Probably uh, counter to what most people would think now that Leeds are back in the Premier League. However. Um, 
you know, we went through some treacherous times. We uh, went out of business, administration, sold the team a couple of times, liquidated, sold all of our assets and became this, well, didn't become, we were already somewhat of a hated figure. Um, and we started in the lowest of the low, consider it like the Yankees playing in the double A. And we started on negative 15 points. And I went to our first away game of the season. And let's say three or 4,000 fans packed into the away stand at Tranmere Rovers, a little town just outside of Liverpool in Merseyside. And, uh, and we scored a 94th minute goal against all odds. And it felt like the start of the rebound. We had hit rock bottom. And what was at, at the time and probably still is now an unknown player, Trezor Kandal. Uh, scored a 94th minute winner and there's feelings and sounds that you will never be able to recreate and it was this feeling that everyone hated you and we don't care and that was what the chant goes everyone hates us we don't care dirty leads and and it's sort of uh i'll be honest you sort of become an, a t completely different person in that moment because step away from a soccer game uh, i don't think i could ever get to that level of sort of anger or passion about anything but you blow the whistle and you're at a game especially an away game where in England it's different to here you're cornered into a small section of the stadium but you get to be with your own fans versus littered around a 60,000 seat stadium where you really don't feel like you're meant to be there and when the odds are stacked against you and everyone hates you and that feeling of the of the last minute winner and the bus ride home with all the fans on the bus felt like the the start of the next chapter for Leeds and and here we are 16 years later so it's more the feeling than the actual moment that is somewhat you know un, unreplicable in my mind did you cry um probably not because you're getting I, a little emotional you're getting a little emotional talking about it. I could see your eyes misting up it's a little awkward yeah what about you Bill so uh yeah I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to duplicate that so I'm going to try I might have to fake some of this uh when we talk so so that there's Won't two the first time though <laughs> There's two that stand out. Um, 1985, uh, well before you were probably born, Richie, the Giants, who had not ever played in a Super Bowl and had suffered so, so, through some really, really tough years in the NFL, never really even came close. In uh, 1985, they had a great team and played in the NFC Championship game for the first time. And well, for, actually, yeah, for the for the first time playing in the NFC Championship game uh, against the Redskins. And I was working in a sporting goods store and one of the defensive backs for the Giants girlfriend walked into the sporting goods store and I, I recognized her from television, from an interview she did on television because she was local to New Haven and as was the player. And she had tickets and she said, does anybody here want tickets for the game? I'm selling them. I'm assuming she's selling her, her, her husband's tickets at the time because they probably didn't make as much money as they do now. And I was like, yes, I want them. And I bought tickets to the Giants Redskins NFC Championship game that was uh, at Giants Stadium that led to them playing in their first Super Bowl against the Broncos. So that was awesome. Just an awesome experience. Freezing cold. But the, you know, I'm, I'm a Giant fan, but you could tell in the stadium Back then, Giant Stadium was filled with nothing but season ticket holders, and those people had been season ticket holders for their whole lives and families and passed down, and there was like a 15-year waiting list for Giant season tickets. So to, just to watch the people around me and what it meant to them for the Giants to make the Super Bowl, I was a big fan, but nothing to that level. And I was seeing like grown men cry and you know sons and fathers hugging each other and crying, just the kind of stuff you read about. So that was pretty awesome. And uh, personally, though, I would say for me, to experience as a fan, there's nothing really that compares to the Yankees in my sports fandom. 
And in uh, 2009, I was able to go to uh, every playoff game and every World Series game when they won the World Series in their first year in the new Yankee Stadium, including game six when they uh, when they won the World Series. And so to see my favorite team in person win a World Series uh, was far and away the, the, the pinnacle of my fan experience. Nothing has come close since. Uh, not sure anything will, even if the Yankees win now, win again, I'm not sure it would match up to, to the experience that I went through at, at the stadium during that kind of October run. Do you want to give any shout outs for that, Bill? Yeah, I'll give a shout out. Dave Dave, Dave uh, Barrett's listening. He adopted me. He was a guy I knew through work. He was one of our board members. And he had some season tickets that were kind of in, in an area where you couldn't bring clients. And uh, he has his own business. And he uh, he realized that I was an actual fan and, uh, and and didn't want to really bring people to the games who didn't want to watch the games and play talk baseball. So he kind of adopted me midway through the season. And I think I ended up going to roughly 30 games that year with him, including every playoff and World Series game. Um, and the, the sixth game, of the World Series, sitting two rows behind us, and we were in the upper deck, was Bill Murray, actually, of all things. So while we were like celebrating in the final innings when it looked like the Yankees were gonna, you know, take the series over Philadelphia, we're kind of like high fiving fans looking around, and we turn around, and literally two, this is way in the upper deck in, in, in left field, is Bill Murray, of all people, mm-hmm. like hammered out of his mind, high fiving fans. So it was, it was a memorable evening for sure. Bill, you strike me as someone that fills out a scorecard as it goes. Am I wrong? Not anymore. 100% that used to be my thing. I used to get the scorecard and and fill it out. And it was for the kind of the same reason you were talking about with your program, because back in those days, it's the only way you knew what happened, right? I mean, there was no like where you couldn't click on the internet and see like how many innings this guy pitched, how many strikeouts he had, who who did what and whatnot. So yes, 100%. So so one last thing, the the other live sporting event that that I attended, I actually first time I ever used a scorecard was the first baseball game I ever went to at Yankee Stadium where we were lucky enough to get passes into the dugout for um, batting practice. And it was a never meet your heroes moment. So my favorite player growing up was Bobby Mercer was, you know, all time Yankee great. Um, If you were a Yankee fan, he was like the only good player back in the bad days of the Yankees when they weren't very good in the 70s. And so we walk into the dugout and it's batting practice. And I'm like, I think I was like nine and my eyes were so wide open. And this is like all my heroes, Sparky Lyle, all these great Yankees just coming in out of the dugout. I had a little, literally like a little notepad and they were signing autographs. And all of a sudden Bobby Mercer comes in and I'm like, I couldn't even speak to him. So I went up to him just kind of like, hey, Mr. Mercer, would you mind signing? And he signed. And I said, you're going to hit a home run today. And Connor will have to bleep this out because this is what I'll never forget. He looked at me and said, I'm so fucking hungover. I'll be lucky if I can barely hit the ball. And he walked away. No and I was, nine, I was nine years old. I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, what? And like, people, We kind of scurried out of the dugout after that one. But that was uh, wow. also also another very memorable moment. So one of those never meet your heroes moments. He's such a nice guy too, but it was just like more like a reality check. Wow, these guys are humans. <laughs> well, also to sort of validate your diehardness of being a Yankee fan, I think we have to dabble on the tattoos. The what? The tattoos. Because wow. hmm. didn't Dave get a tattoo as well? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a better or anything, but yeah. I think the good thing about it, we didn't get them as, uh, when people say, w- w- you know, what's that tattoo? When did you get it? I always say, yeah, you know, when you're young, you make mistakes. And they said, like, when did you get it? I said, well, when I was 45. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, uh, and D- Dave uh, Dave also got a Yankee tattoo. Yeah, yeah. So it's Wasn't that post the 2009? Uh, I got mine before that. Uh, Dave right. got his post-2009 post for sure. But yeah, I got mine back in like 2005 or 2004 or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, uh, I don't mind. I don't care. I'll keep it. I wear it proudly. 
But the funny part is my ritual and my superstition, because Rich doesn't have any superstitions, I am chock full of superstitions. There's like combination superstition, obsessive compulsive. It's kind of like a, comp <laughs> a, a really bad combination when you're watching sports. The perfect storm. The perfect storm for sure. So my big superstition is I literally, for any game of any team that I go over for, and specifically the Yankees, be it at home or be it at the stadium, refuse to wear any Yankee gear. I own one Yankee hat. And I wear it when I'm home occasionally, but I never wear it when a game is on. And I've never worn anything that says the Yankees except my tattoo to Yankee Stadium ever. Full link. I love it. <laughs> oh, so uh, in that regard, England, very different in terms of paraphernalia. Is that the right word? Yeah, well, it depends. Let, let's see where the story is going. So if you're at a home game, you can get away with wearing your team's shirt, jersey, hats. But if you go to an away game, you're basically uh, in nondescript clothing for two reasons. If you're a Leeds fan, you'll probably get beaten up or you won't be allowed into the local pubs. So uh, for those two reasons, both very good reasons, by the way, uh, you don't wear any of your team's uh, attire if, if you're heading to an away game. That's a no-no. Do, do opposing fans get a little uh, shifty on that and maybe don a Leeds jersey just so they can infiltrate? Mm. Is that am I am I coming up with something new? Sounds like a good movie behind enemy lines. I don't know. <laughs> now I know why you guys lost the revolution. <laughs> never never thought of things what? such as that before. Huh? Why Dress would you wear red, by the way? <laughs> Dress in red, march down the street playing the bugle. Good 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 strategy. <laughs> Lord Cornwallis or whatever your name was. Right. No wonder it was the last post. <laughs> Connor, what do we have for you? I know you're you're you are not like the well, sports fan no. of the ilk that Rich and I are, but you still no. must have something that you could contribute. I do contribute so, something to this podcast, Connor. Would you I, please? Yeah, I think maybe this might even blow both of you out of the water. Um, so I'm Team USA through and through. And so I actually have this where I don't think my best live moment has happened yet in my lifetime. And I can't wait for that to still happen. However, the two things that do for Team USA, it's soccer and squash for me. And so I did have a, a great Team USA squash moment. And this is when I was traveling with the teams in 2011 to Denmark. And we cracked the top eight. And it was just such a special moment. It was you know, we were going wild. It was, it was coming down to the wire and um, our team pulled through. And it was such a roller coaster ride because we're playing and we just barely break through with uh, Gordo coming through with the big win to go through to the top eight. And then we lose a, a tough one to South Africa. So I was riding the wave of, uh, of an eighth place finish. That's very inspiring. But go ahead. What else you got? I'm saying that I don't think my best live sporting event has happened because I haven't really gone to many Team USA soccer events. You were telling us about your uh, your polo fandom earlier uh, before we started recording. Maybe just give us a snippet. Sure. Uh, that was me uh, fucking with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, we'll, we'll bleep that out. <laughs> I, I don't think bleeps are necessary for this crowd. but uh, That's a keeper. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, we'll end the ritual conversation. Um, I did a little deep diving into certain rituals of other fans and um, just coming across different things like the uh, the Detroit Red Wings throwing octopus on the ice and just all kinds of weird stuff. But the one that I came across and I shared it with Rich this morning via text was there's a, a small university and I, th I think it's one of the coolest ones. There's a small university in Indiana called Taylor University and they're like an NAIA school. So in Indiana basketball, they're like on the they're probably not even as big as most high schools. And um, they have what's called Silent Night. And it happens the evening before finals start during the Christmas season. And their basketball team plays a home game. And the fans come in. 
they basically have to like sleep outside the gymnasium to get admitted because it's so small. But they come in dressed in all kinds of costumes, be it Christmas, be it just weird costumes. And they get lit into this, um, the arena, the basketball arena. And for the first part of the game, no one is allowed to say a word. So the place is packed. The two teams are playing and there's not a sound being done except by the players, the referees and the players and the coaches and the squeaks of the sneakers. Um, and at when the 10th point is scored, the place goes crazy. So once the players score a 10th point for Taylor, the fans go nuts. They start dancing out in the, uh, in the court. Then they all storm the court in all their costumes. And it's basically like a 15 minute delay of the game in the first first half over this. And then finally, after going okay. through all that and they finally get it all sorted out, the play, the fans get back into their stands and they sing silent night as a group and sing the song silent night. And that ends the ritual for the year. And it's like the thing, the fan, the, uh, the student body looks forward to the whole year. If you haven't seen it, go on, YouTube and watch it. It is something that is just phenomenal. How they thought of it, as Rich called it, it's it's uniquely American, um, and 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 it certainly it, and it certainly is. That was paraphrased, Bill. Oh, was it? Sorry about that. <laughs> Would you like to expand on it, Rich? You got the mic. I, I no, I said that is is awesome yet uniquely American. Like only here could you get away with you know doing something as ludicrous, but yet it hits uh, like it did. It, it was very cool. I think now's the time to kind of transition to the next part and go into our actual The Breakdown. So the other big part of game day that happens is sometimes they're not even noticed, and sometimes it's what the fans will only start talking about. And this is the officials, or in squash we call them referees. So we use go back and forth. And we're here to kind of talk about the role that they play within the sport of squash. And so we couldn't think of a better guest to bring on and Rich Wade, who really helped bring you a squash into a new era of dealing with the officials. Do you want to give a little bit of context of what you did at your role with U.S. Squash to help push officiating forward? So ironically, my introduction to U.S. Squash was through uh, a disagreement over officiating. U.S. Junior Open up in Boston one year, and uh, just the way a certain situation was handled uh, was uniquely referee-like. Um, and so I just confronted him in a, in a positive fashion, which was, look, we realized that we need to help as professionals, teaching pros, players, and what can we do? And we had a deep dive into some of the challenges that were being faced um, and what the potential was for officiating and its program within the US and globally. And after a couple of months of discussions, that was sort of my starting point at US Squash um, from grassroots level, educating the juniors, all the way through to being the tournament referee at a couple of uh, world championships from the Professional Squash Association, um, other major PSA events around the US, and really helping to try and bring together both the Pan American Federation and also what is now the World Squash Officiating, which is, is the global governing body, to try and align officiating across the world. So, you know, from, again, the grassroots level all the way through to the macro level and helping on the professional stage. The reason we're kind of bringing this up now is uh, getting a lot of play uh, uh, from what we're reading is the world of squash officiating uh, that Roy Gingell is leading. So for those of us who don't really know a lot about that, could you kind of talk about what exactly that is? So prior to leaving U.S. Squash, I was actually on the committee to help develop what the WSO is. I uh, worked closely with Roy Gingell and, and Alex Goff out of the PSA and, and the WSF. In short, it's an educational tool 
um, soup to nuts, a, a portal where you could get everything that you want, whether it be formal or informal education, in-depth decision-making, reasoning, communication skills, videos, a portal for assessments, a feedback loop. Its attempt is to be not so um, siloed where, you know, officiating is naturally a peer-to-peer -peer assessment tool which in and of itself is a real challenge because what you think of a decision and what Connor thinks of a decision can be vastly different. And then depending on who's assessing my match, I might get a pass or a fail. So it's an attempt to neutralize that and to make it a more fair process for the education of officials and for the assessment of officials. Uh, a one-stop shop, call it. I, I think globally, we all do it slightly differently. Um, some because of resources, some simply down to a lack of desire or need for it. And, and I think we see officiating at the highest level, which would be the PSA. And so the fact that they're trying to get it right at that level is important because that's really our only interaction with, hey, what is the latest rules or what should officiating look like, which makes it really important that the mouthpiece to the sort of squash universe being the PSA is right. And I would say it's not perfect, far from it, but that, that's where they're, um, they're putting their efforts. And then in the meantime, if we can grow grassroots and education at the lower levels, we will eventually meet in the middle. So it's an online portal. Is there, is there a pathway from that portal and from those online videos and courses to live referee somewhere? Because as we know, it's one thing to do something online. It's one thing to you know experience it virtually. And then you get thrown out into the heat of a squash match, be it a league match, be it a junior tournament, be it a college match, high school match. It's a different animal for sure. So is there a pathway from that portal to live refereeing where your education will continue and you'll be supported by that? There is. I think what's unique about squash and technology is the portal and something that I had helped develop at US Squash allows you to identify individuals that have the decision-making ability, but you can't really uh, review the communication and personality of an individual um, until they're in the seat. And the two are teachable. So either you see the potential in someone because they have the characteristics that are more intangible, and you need to make sure that they're on the right line of thinking from a decision-making standpoint, or you have the sort of book smart referee that understands what a decision is when it looks like this, but isn't always the most nuanced in their communication or management skills in terms of managing a match. And so this will have a combination of the two. It has taken some time to get to this point, but because of the nature of what this is, it's sort of a globally unifying portal. It has to be, hey, I'm brand new to squash officiating. Where do I start? Through to uh, the highest level officials. So, so yes, th there's combinations of, of course, it's online because the reach can be much broader that way. Um, but then there's an element of the local and regional governing bodies have to facilitate someone's development in the seat, as they like to say. Is the WSO also issuing certifications? Is that being bundled under there? Correct. So um, they've developed five levels, really six, because they start at level zero, but it's level zero to five in its latest iteration, at least. And, and they do. And, and here's the challenge. 
some governing bodies like US Squash have the resources to develop their own officiating program, which we did under my tenure and, and even prior to myself, but became more robust during my time uh, with a ton of help from the already established officials. But where this becomes most useful is for some of the um, nations that maybe don't have the resources and they can tap into something that's of a global outreach. I, I think of some South American countries, perhaps some African countries that just don't have the national governing bodies in place to truly develop their own programs and develop their own officials. The, the challenge will be and is getting the national governing bodies on board that have their own program. And refereeing is typically very protective over what they do in their region or country. Uh, they protect their little fiefdom uh, passionately. And so no one wants to give up the power to anyone else. And there's a lack of faith and trust in some organizations to do what they said they were going to do in, in the time frame that they said they were going to do it. So um, in, in a nutshell, yes. Uh, it will be broad reaching and, and accessible to all national governing bodies, but a challenge will be aligning it with the governing bodies that have already got established programs. I'm going to put you in a position here where you, you may have to take sides. So um, in squash, it, it seems like squash players, especially even from juniors onto college, onto professionals, are under the impression that the issue of refereeing is more like poor refereeing is more rampant in their sport in squash than any other sport. And the reasons you hear when you're privy to some conversations are that, hey, these referees never played at this level. So how could they possibly call a match at this level? And this is affecting our game. And because they're not full time, they're not full time officials, they could never really reach the um, the the levels of officials in other high professional sports. When we all know that other sports have the same issues with refereeing, literally every sport has the same issue. So how, how do you solve for that thought of squash players that think that number one, refereeing is like the, the biggest issue in our sport only. And number two, like that referees, unless they've played high level squash, can't properly referee a game. Yeah, well, look, I think you just have to look at other sports, as you said, and even with far more resources and technology, they still can't get it right. The introduction of VAR in the Premier League and through FIFA um, has almost created more problems than what we had prior. Uh, I think about the NFL and the way they're using their review system, Major League Baseball and, and considering a an automated strike zone. I think it's the never-ending search to try and make decision-making black and white. But isn't there something truly unique and amazing about human error and the discussion that that creates? Uh, and the response to a decision versus throwing money and technology at an issue and yes, just creating an even bigger problem. So yes, refereeing and is, is a challenge, I would say. I wouldn't say it's an issue. It's a challenge in squash. And it starts at the beginning. Your previous guest, Dave Talbot, talked about the uh, refereeing at the college level and having to referee a teammate. That's uh, completely unfair on a teenager to have to have that type of pressure, peer pressure, because they don't want to be the one responsible for sort of making, you know, not making a teammate lose, because I truly think you never lose because of a refereeing decision, but uh, making it feel like that's the case versus what the right decision is for the sport. And, and we've taken on this gentleman's view of squash, and truly that's not the case at the highest level. And we need to take it out of the hands of the players in terms of the decision making. My, my pitch in my first ever team meeting to the referees was, hey, let's not be on squash site tomorrow. 
that would be a great day for us. And I said that because bad officiating is highlighted and exaggerated. Good officiating is ignored. And so it's not a fair sort of two-way street in that regard. So very rarely do you see an official handling a match well, getting credit for for that. And I think that's where this issue really starts, is the fact that um, it's not a level playing field. And essentially in squash, there is a winner and a loser, and you're going to have to accept that. So when you were uh, at the U.S. Open and you were kind of handling the refereeing and I was privy to sitting in on a meeting room uh, where you were watching videos of the matches with all the referees from that tournament. And it struck me, this one thing not to know the rules and, you know, the black and white rules, bleeding rules and things such as that. But when you guys were going through lets and strokes, it was startling to me that throughout the room, same play, same there were like seven different opinions of whether it was a letter or a stroke. And I think that's the biggest issue in, in squash is the lets and strokes. And watching that, I was like, well, you know what? I don't think we're ever going to solve for that. You could, you could kind of break it down a little bit. So if the player does this, you could always call it a stroke or a let. But for the most part, there's always going to be varying opinions on strokes and lets. So I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, can we, are the players at fault here? Is I guess what I'm trying to get to. The players trying to maybe fish, maybe trying to create those situations where there's doubt in the referee's mind. And basically, in the end, they're the problem, not really the referees. Right. I don't know that I could say the players are at fault because a part of me is on the player's side, but the players can and will be a part of the solution. And I think if you take that view, then we have a place in which that we can start moving forward. Uh, I've had things recommended to me such as, hey, you should really have the ref approach the players pre-match boxing style and tell them how they're going to call the match. And I left because I know some of those individuals that they'd have to talk to. I know how little respect they have for officials. They would laugh in their face and say, are you kidding me? You know, so while it seems like a logical thing to do, and at the junior level, we have done that only because we take that true education stance with a junior that we want to make sure that we're closing the education loop at at the junior level. But at the highest level, you know, livelihood on the line, uh, high pressured environment, I, I just don't see that going down well. Do you think it's the right thing to do? Separate if it's not going down. Do you think that that's would be good? If you were playing and someone came up to you like, this is how I'm going to call it. I, I think establishing what they call a line of thinking would be really helpful. I think as a player, all you want is consistent decision making. The rabbit hole that we're going down at the professional level is um, there's a lot of video content out there and the referees review a ton of that. So they almost go into a match with a preconceived notion that this player does this. Watch out for this. But you can't referee said match based on historical context. You almost have to start at ground zero again and build the story of the match in your mind. And if the PSA doesn't want you to do that, then I believe the sanctions need to come at a higher level out of the match situation, uh, suspensions and fines versus, unfortunately, isolating a referee who, by the way, sits in the middle of the stands with the crowd. I mean, how absurd is that? (laughs) um well unique in any sport right i was trying i was just thinking of that is there another sport where that happens i can't think of one so they they laugh well they don't always laugh but they have the best seat in the house which is great and remember that these referees are not professional referees maybe one day we'll get there they're avid fans of the sport they do it for the love of the sport 
and they're passionate about the officiating piece and giving back. Uh, what players don't always know? Let's separate because I think that just the profession, like they are our current professionals, but it doesn't mean that they make their living solely off of this, right? Like they are the highest level officials that we have currently. Right. They're, they're almost, I would say, paid volunteers. It's a hobby of theirs. Uh, they're passionate about it, but it's not what they do day in, day out. By the way, we have some very smart people, some working at NASA and IBM and running their own businesses and lawyers. So, um, but, but people never really get to know who's, you know, who's on the chair. And uh, so they're, they're smart people. I think one of the big issues is, and, and I hate to criticize because there are some of my favorite people in squash, uh, like, you know, Joey and PJ doing the PSA TV, those folks criticizing the referees so heavily. And they, they have, you know, watching the video and saying, this is the call and saying, this is what the call should be. And I think as a fan, I might not know. And they're they're trying to form my opinion for me. And, and I think that's part of the issue. I think if somebody watches a PSA match on PSA Squash TV, they go away thinking the match was partly refereed because Joey and PJ and Johnny and Vanessa and whomever says it was. And it doesn't necessarily mean it was. It's just their opinion. And I, I think that's a big problem in the sport, to be honest with you. Yeah, I put that down to education because um, as we all know, the, the players of the sport aren't always the ones that are up to speed with what the current rules are or how they're implemented. And I love the fact that the, the discussion can take place at the commentary level, but we're in a relatively small sport and they are the only mouthpiece to an audience. So they really do take on an educational role as well as an entertainment. And I think from an entertainment factor, uh, the, the names that you've mentioned are second to none. It, it, you know, there's times where I might not even be watching the match, but I'm listening to them. However, uh, you know, all of these message boards and chat rooms uh, do because there's not enough access to other journalists writing about the sport. So um, a little siloed in that regard. And so the education of, of, of the commentators is key. Uh, love when Joey and PJ sit in the room and tear their hair out and throw their arms up and down at some of the reviews of decisions. And, and then when we listen to them commentate and then a Lee Drew who heads up the PSA officiating crew talks them round to the correct line of thinking. I've, I see that as a missed opportunity to educate the squash universe as to why a decision was such a decision, but it's happened the next day in a, in a room out back of, of the venue um, when they realized that perhaps they, they got it wrong. So we've spent a little bit of time talking about kind of the top level, and I'd actually like to turn it over to Bill because you also have a deep um, background with officiating, and you were involved in basketball. Yeah, I was I was a basketball official for, you know, and, and when I was much younger, refereeing from recreation and leagues to a little bit of uh, high school basketball and middle school basketball and things such as that. And I mean, well, how did you get started and why did you get started and how did you get trained? Because uh, I wasn't good enough to, to play anymore. And uh, I wanted it, it, was, it paid while I was in college, basically, to do the, like the local high school games that, uh, that that weren't official. So I was a board official for a short period of time, but I was more doing like uh, scrimmage games of the local high schools they needed for like warm ups to the state championships and whatnot. So I, I received literally no official training. It was basically because I had played a little basketball growing up. But I, I, I found... And I think, and I still find this in when I referee squash matches, the rare times that I do when I play in a tournament and I typically lose. So I have to referee because that's the rule that, um, if you sound like, you know, what you're talking about, you, people think, you know, what you're talking about. And so in basketball refereeing, if I yelled that call out loud and made it quick, and there was no indecision in my call, 
regardless of whether it was wrong or right. Cause you know, just like in strokes and lefts, blocks and charges in basketball, whether it was a block or a charge, it's the same gray area, but you know what? Just don't hesitate and make the call and make it loud and make it voice for us. And people think that you know what you're doing in squash. I did the same thing. I called the strokes and lets like, I know what I'm talking about. And of course I don't know what I'm talking about. I have a, a kind of an idea, but if you do it loud and don't hesitate, and when someone complains, you don't like say, ah, oh, you know what? You're maybe right. And that you don't be wishy-washy about it. And it's the same way I was in basketball. And I think 90% of squash, not at the highest levels, not at the PSA levels, but at the junior levels, for sure. If the referee goes that route and, you know, has a basic understanding of the tenets of the game, that would eliminate a lot of the issues just by being so strong. many, yeah. so many. And I think um, to Rich's point earlier, which I would just 100% echo is as long as you were consistent in how you're doing it, people would get a sense then how to play their game. So, so Rich, I want to ask you as we, you know, we were, as we wrap this up, tell me this uh, on the officiating side, give me, give me like one change, one or two changes that you would say, Hey, th if this happened, it would kind of make a big, big dent in the sport in, in, in this refereeing, uh, the refereeing question. I think we need to grow the pool of officials. Number one. Uh, I think that goes to any uh, walk of life. The more you build out the base of the pyramid, the better chance that you have to to get hold of a few that are going to come through the program. I, I look at the college squash scene now uh, and how can we lure um, some of those, what are really high level amateur athletes into building out the team of officials that we have. And to do that, uh, unfortunately, is going to take resources. Uh, and and what it's going to take is for officials to not be the last ticket on a line item when building out an event. In fact, it needs to be you know up there at the top behind the players because, as we've all seen, a badly officiated match can can really affect an entire event, not just one individual match. It becomes systemic, and that's really bad for the sport. And then it really does become become an issue. Uh, I think my second, and I say this because I've I lived it for seven years, there's way too much politics. Very tit for tat. Uh, everyone's protecting their piece of the pie. Uh, no one wants to give up the uh, the power of decision making or or their own um, you know their own ability to move up or down an officiating ladder. There's just such a, a major lack of trust in governing bodies to to do the right thing that everyone's holding on to their little piece of it. And it's truly holding everyone back. Uh, this shouldn't be a sport where if you go to an Oceania region, you feel like you're refereed in a certain way or you're in North America and this is what you can expect. I think that's so bad for the sport because take that down to the amateur level. I get uh, members at my club asking like, well, what is the rule on this? And truly at times there are rules in the rule book that are not implemented at the professional level, and there's just a common understanding that that's the case. But if I play golf, I'm playing by the same rules as a PGA player. And, and that's exactly how it should be in my mind. Um, if, yeah. you know, I don't know if I 100% agree with that, because I think that there can be delineations between how you officiate those who are earning their living and those in the amateur pool. I mean, we have different fine, rules. But doesn't that need we have different to be rules outlined? for ice hockey, different rules for basketball, just even from the three point line, like there can be different rules. But yeah, I think what you're saying is it needs to be spelled out either way. Right, right. I think that's important for the growth of the sport and for the health of officiating globally is that you at least acknowledge that. 
Um, and that's fine. If we can acknowledge that, hey, we're not going to referee Ali Farag the same as Bill Buckingham playing his double bounce squash, then, uh, you know, I think that's that's a really helpful step forward. Can we be clear on that, by the way, that it's double bounce squash ahead of time so people, I am allowed to let it bounce twice so people don't think I don't call my double bounces. I have a, my integrity protect here. Well, I, I will take uh, credit and blame for this because I think I introduced you to it. It's, you it's, did. A, you did. it's you a really did. good warm up. Um, you 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 play a double bounce in the yeah. beginning. So yeah, and, I, and I've taken it beyond warm up to actual just the games. That's how I play from now on. But so my two out of box things. Now that you asked, I know, I'm glad you asked me, Rich. What what my thoughts were on this? Um, my two out of bounds ideas, and, and and you know I've I've said this often, and I get shot down often. Number one, first and foremost no dissent on lets and strokes by the players, not allowed at any level. If you dissent on strokes and lets, it's an automatic point deduction or whatever the warning point deduction, whatever you want it to be. It is illegal to dissent. Um, just like in baseball where it is illegal to argue balls and strikes, automatic ejection. If you uh, argue balls and strikes in baseball. So that's always been my number one thing. And I think that would eliminate a lot of the back and forth between the players and the refs and make the game much more enjoyable to watch from the fans experience. I think if you take that out of here, secondly, and this is one I've thought of recently during the pandemic when squash was kind of, you know, can we come back with this many people in the, in the arena and you know, what, what's the deal and, you know, getting all the whole staff there to, to run a PSA event thoughts on, for the early rounds of a PSA event before the, you know, you get to the quarters maybe, or the rounds of 16, that players who have been eliminated from the early rounds on other sides of each side of the draw referee in the next round and get paid. So they get some money because you know, those players, you know, they'll get, they'll get some money for the, for refereeing. So they'll make some more money in referee match. So number one, they learn how tough it is to do it. And so maybe the next time they step on court and say a stroke or a let doesn't go their way, they'd be a little more hesitant to to complain and argue and uh, and kind of make a nuisance of themselves on the court because they're like, Jesus, I, these guys have it tough up here. I love it. Love the idea. Not out of bounds at all, Bill. Really? So a players refereeing has been done. That's also part of the problem. You know that pros have to like at the lower levels they have to figure out refereeing and they have to do it themselves. The onus is on them. I love the no dissent. I think that that would really put onus on figuring out the system overall. Yeah. Any chance that would ever be implemented, Rich? In your in your opinion, uh, on the on the uh, on the pro tours, you know specifically, from a dissent standpoint. Yeah, I, I just think there's too many good examples of where it is implemented well. Uh, you mentioned baseball, but say the difference between rugby uh, and soccer. While there was a very poorly officiated rugby match last week, the the ability to officiate that match is considerably easier and then more consistent. When it's pretty simple, you don't argue with this decision, and it's a much more respectful uh, approach versus you know the back chat and the snide remarks, and and you know what the officials almost drop to their level. I think you see that on the squash court, the the banter that begins to go back and forth is really bad for the sport because it looks so colloquial and like we're running a little exhibition tour instead of hey, just the the referees demand respect, but also um, the players respect the officials. So why not push that to the only time you can even talk to the official would be during the two-minute uh, break. Save it for the break. Yeah, I, I, I've seen a ton implemented. You can't talk to the ref while the video review is happening, but you see it happen. Uh, you know, they're shouting, trying to defend their case as if it's a courtroom. That just needs policing at the highest levels in my mind. 
Yeah, I think it's the bigger issue. It's detrimental to the fan experience, and you're trying to introduce somebody who doesn't watch squash to squash, and you bring them to a match. I did it with TOC and brought somebody to see Galtier play Palmer, and all they did for a whole game is argue and argue strokes and lets and complain to the ref. And my buddy was like, "Let's go. I don't want it. this is like the worst." Yeah, thing it ever. makes zero sense. What we're essentially highlighting is perhaps there needs to be dialogue between the officials and the players. But for me, it's the where and the when that occurs. And it doesn't have to be interrupting the fan experience, as Bill was just saying. Like, it's really bad impression for the sport. So on the thought of interrupting the fan experience, we're going to bring this to an end and interrupt this discussion. Uh, Rich, uh, any last words on uh, on what we've talked about today? It was a pleasure having you, and we look forward yeah. to having you again on the pod when we talk about uh, maybe golf down the road. Oh, can't wait for that. Weather's turning now. No, look, just from an officiating standpoint, something that I'm massively passionate about, which people need to be in terms of um, creating change from an officiating standpoint. Um, but it's truly going to be a collective effort and it needs every piece of that puzzle to to come together from, from the PSA and WSF. The promoters play a major role, the athletes, the officials and the audience. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, we, we all owe it to the sport to, to at least get this portion of it right, though it is a great talking point at times. And you don't want to remove that. But at the same time, you, you want it to be consistent and, and clear so that the brand of the sport is, is clear. Are there any shout outs in terms of who you think is doing a great job and you want them to keep going? Look, Roy Gingell certainly considered one of the leading voices and minds in the game. Lee Drew's done a stellar job trying to uh, streamline uh, line of thinking at the highest level. You know, in this country, Tama Al-Nagari, Mike Riley, Sheldon Anderson, uh, all instrumental in um, the supporting of upcoming officials and leading the way in terms of their own officiating level. And then, you know, a shout out to someone like a John Mazzarella, who's done this for the longest time and who did not play at the highest level. In fact, was uh, was heavily into his soccer before following a passion and widely considered for a long time one of the best refs in the world. So I think that's true. Uh, you know, rings true in that you don't have to have played at the highest level. In fact, most officials haven't. Um, um, but there's so many more pieces to getting the officiating puzzle right than than playing at the highest level. Love it. Well, thank you for joining uh, the breakdown. Rich, it was a pleasure. We look forward to it. And thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. Biosport shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Bia Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level. So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new Biaforce X for a test drive. All right, Bill, it's time for our favorite segment, fan follow-up. Love right, the fan. You're coming around. Love the fan follow-up, Cotter. Love the fan follow-up, especially coming off uh, coming off the Richie Wade interview. Um, he, he, he is one of those folks who has his hands in so many facets of squash. We could have him on this show 10 times and we probably will um, uh, and, and get some uh, get some uh, nuggets of knowledge that we, we normally wouldn't get from any other guests. Yeah, I mean, I think um, just quickly to talk about the segment we just recorded, um, 
you know, officiating is such a big part of our sport, and I think it's going to continue to be regardless of the improvements we do. But one thing that is still startling to me, and I think a measure of when we start seeing improvement, will be the percentage of college matches that aren't just refereed by players themselves. Yeah, yeah, uh, huge, huge, huge deal. College is such an important part of uh, of college squashes, as we know from the fan follow up. Our biggest fan follow ups have been from our college uh, talking to Dave Pullman and then talking to Dave Talbot last week. So, uh, leading into fan follow up for for this episode, hey, let us know uh, what what you thought of the episode. Uh, f- uh, whether you have rituals, whether uh, you know sports rituals that you follow, superstitions you have, and also what you think can be done uh, in, in the game of squash uh, uh, to help the officiating and and uh, and what could be anything they can do to improve the game. Uh, we look forward to it. Uh, squash radio at gmail.com at squash radio and uh, at buck squash. Love it. All right, so let's talk. Um, we got some feedback from our latest episode yeah. with Yale head squash pro retiring Dave Talbot. What do we uh, get? Um, most of all, the feedback was from me saying, wow, I can't believe we did that interview and edited it. So your edits on that were incredible because there was <laughs> that that episode was cut down and it, it was awesome. So kudos to you. My fan follow-up is kudos to you, Connor, for editing that episode. It was, it was a tough edit to say the least. So kudos yeah. to you. Team effort, Bill. Team, team effort. We had Chase from Philadelphia said the pod was awesome. Uh, I played for Dave Talbot, and he said I should have asked him who not only were his greatest players, but who were his greatest characters uh, on his team. And he Ooh, said, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it was a little self serving, Chase said, because he wanted to hear his own name mentioned. So Chase apparently was a, a Yale player who, uh, who was a bit of a character. I think we definitely would agree that he'd be up there. <laughs> he definitely would be up there. Lauren from Colorado. And again, we received uh, a lot of uh, texts and emails from ex-Yale players who who we know uh, and who we don't know, uh, saying that they, it was great to hear from Dave. And, uh, you know, they, you know, he's a legend of the game and he touched so many players' lives in his 38 years there. Lauren from Colorado. Um, uh, Love the fact that Dave was the first person to show me a squash racket because she said when she was growing up, Mark Talbot came to the Chatham school where she went to school and, uh, and showed her how to play squash. And, she, and Mark was the first person that she played squash with. So uh, I am not unique in that. First person, uh, Lauren from Colorado, played squash with Mark Talbot. And she went on to play at Yale with some of those great teams with Michelle Quabell and, uh, and Amy Gross and uh, Katie McLeod. Um, Andy from Connecticut um, said, uh, love the Talbot interview. He forwarded uh, the Augusta golf stories. Andy's a golfer, said forwarded the Augusta stories onto a bunch of his golf playing friends who are hopefully now uh, listeners of the breakdown. And uh, Andy did what we suggest all of you do, all of our listeners do. He bought a pair of squash shoes from Bias Sports. So Andy patronizing our sponsors. That's the way the pod's going to grow. So Andy, kudos and shout out to you. Um, And they're great shoes. I mean, I wear them all the time. Biasports.us. Biasports. B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Our final follow-up and my favorite, Lynn from Connecticut says she agrees with your cousin Kaylee that I have a nice voice. So Lynn, thank you for that. Well, hang on. I have one more fan follow-up that I think I I have to read. Here we go. You probably probably know where I'm going. Uh, This came in through the website. Um, Dear Squash Radio, I particularly enjoyed your interview with the legend of squash, Dave Talbot. He mentioned that playing golf with Bill can be painful, but it's fun. Reminds me of our marriage. Hallie from Connecticut. <laughs> all fan, all fan follow-up is taken into consideration, so please I, I, reach out. I appreciate that, and uh, good night, Kaylee. See you, Connor. <laughs>